Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, another topic that we haven't yet discussed very much uh, today, that is, uh, so we've been talking about what happens with people's behavior in general when they live in places where they are more or less exposed to pathogens and infectious disease. But uh, this also depends on the origins of each infectious agent or infectious disease because i mean if they come from human sources yeah. then the effect is much bigger than when they come from zoonic sources that is from other animals right, right. absolutely that's a that's an, that's an important point i'm glad you brought that up we've looked at that in great detail uh the parasite stress theory of bay is is also we also call it the parasite stress theory of sociality because it's a general theory of social behavior. So if you're xenophobic, you're behaving socially differently than if you're not xenophobic. If you're ethnocentric, you're behaving socially different and so forth. So it's a general theory of social behavior. And, um, and uh, so let's see now, your question was again, oh yeah, the kind of parasite, right. So it's about human social interaction, parasite stress theory, but it's about human social interaction and uh, contagion risk associated with human social interaction. So diseases of humans are divisible into two categories, basically. We can talk about them as zoonotic diseases, zoonotic, and these diseases uh, are, are catchable from non-human animals only. So we get these diseases, these zoonotic diseases, and there are a lot of them, from livestock, from pets, from wildlife, and so forth. That's where those diseases come from. The other category of human infectious diseases is non-zoonotic, and we get those from humans. We get those from humans. We may also get them from wildlife, in some cases, but we get them from humans too. So basically, you can break the uh, you can break the human infectious diseases down, and epidemiologists do this. You got the zoonotic; you only get from non-human animals. You got the uh, category of uh, that we get from humans, and in that category, you got human-specific. You only get them from humans, or you get them from humans and other animals. But anyway, you get if you get them from humans then that's what the parasite stress theory of values mainly talks about, how, how, how uh, levels of those, rates of those infectious diseases that we get specifically from humans or get from other animals but also from humans, but we get from humans, uh, relate to value systems and these other variables we're talking about, personality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, uh, that's what we've done. We separate the diseases into these categories and look uh, analytically at what is, uh, how these diseases predict uh, human behavior and psychology. And we find, that, uh, we find that the diseases we get from people are the diseases that predict uh, value systems and governance and personality and so forth, not the diseases uh, that we get from non-human animals. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah, <laughs> and that controls for all kinds of things. I mean, some people have said, well, you know, if you got a lot of infectious diseases in an area, then basically you've got a lot of other kinds of problems too, right? People are poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
and uh, all kinds of problems. So maybe it's is that, that other stuff that's really causing uh, the value variation and not infectious disease. But when you look specifically at the kinds of infectious diseases that the parasite stress theory of values is talking about uh, and focusing on, that is those we get from, from humans, and show that those are the diseases that are predicted. The, the kinds we don't get from humans don't predict these things. They don't predict these things. Um, then that's very powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and what is the main emotion that goes associated with, uh, with how we react to exposure to certain sources of infection or pathogens? Is it disgust mainly, or uh, can we also consider other things like fear? And I'm asking you this because I then have a follow-up, but if you could please tell us about that. Uh, follow-up with what? I missed something there. Uh, oh, oh be, because the follow-up I have for that is that. Uh, so we're talking here about, or we've talked in the last question about uh, exposure to pathogens uh, that have human origins or non-human uh, origins that come from other animals, basically. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I wanted to ask you then that, so we have certain uh, fears uh, to, uh, that are directed towards certain animals like snakes and spiders that seem to be innate or at least partially innate because as far as I know uh, there have been some studies done on chimpanzees uh, and other primates where uh, uh, they have they seem to have an innate fear of snakes for example but to develop that fear they have to be exposed to an, uh, to another individual having a fearful reaction to yeah. a snake and and that doesn't really work if they see another individual having a fearful reaction to a flower for example and that's how basically uh, scientists determine that the fear is partially innate so i would like to ask you if it wouldn't make sense that since perhaps certain animals during our evolutionary history could have represented uh, a source of infection if fear could be another emotion that would already play a part in our avoiding certain uh, infectious sources that could right. perhaps that could perhaps also apply then to other groups of humans let's yeah. say well as you mentioned disgust is very fundamental to the behavioral immune system and that's a that's the underlying uh, uh, underlying emotion that is varying uh, and uh, you know conservatives have more uh, Discuss sensitivity. There's that's a that's there's been a lot of research on that. They're they're it, they're very easy to discuss. The more conservative a person is, the easier they are to discuss. So they have a high disgust sensitivity, um, and that's functional for them because that means that they're that helps protect them from uh, potential sources of contagion. Um, but fear too. I mean, you know, you can get. Uh, I mean, the disgust, you, you get a little bit of disgust reaction all the way to an extreme disgust reaction where you get the uh, human-specific facial facial uh, expression of disgust, you know, very strong reaction in the face, you can see. 
but then fear should be a, should be part of this too, um, but not a generalized fear. I mean, you can be fearful of uh, you know bad weather, uh, but uh, a tornado or something like that. But but a, but a kind of fear. But that hadn't been that hasn't been brought into the research empirically how fear may um, may interact as a protective mechanism against infectious disease. Yeah. Independent of disgust, yeah, because you know when you get disgusted, then it may evoke fear toward whatever's disgusting you, and you want to move back from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would also like to ask you if it makes sense for us to think that perhaps we haven't really developed developed an innate disgust toward certain uh, animal species, like, for example, the ones that we have domesticated since the advent of agriculture, because since we've only had agriculture and domesticated species for perhaps around uh, 10 or 12,000 years or something like that, that perhaps it is too new in our evolutionary history for us to have uh, adapted to that in terms of uh, also feeling disgust toward certain animals Be because uh, and I'm asking you this also because uh, we know nowadays that certain diseases that really affected people uh, and that now we have a certain immunity to them at least the peoples that were that lived in close quarters with certain animals like the pigs the cows and other animals like that uh, that, that perhaps uh, since it is too recent in our evolutionary history, that might have been a reason why we haven't really developed disgust toward those animals, even though they have transmitted certain diseases to us. Yeah, yeah I think that's complicated. But, I mean, the, you know, the pigs and the cows and all that provide benefits. You eat the meat, right? So... Maybe a benefit cost kind of thing, even though, um, but, uh, and the time scale too is relatively recent for domestication as well. That's certainly a factor. But then you have the vegetarians and vegans too. You know, what's going on with them? <laughs> it's not, they would say it's not a disgust uh, reaction as to, or maybe it is, I mean, you know, do they get disgusted when they think about eating meat? Uh, if so, maybe that's uh, a bit of uh, a specific response to domesticated kinds of animals, kind of meat. Uh, I don't know, it's complicated. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's go back to the relationship between stress, uh, parasite stress theory and philopatry. Because I would like to ask you, since you talked about movements of people from one group to another, if parasite stress theory also predicts uh, how people move nowadays from, let's say, for example, one country to another or one region of a specific country to another? What, we, what we've done with uh, the philopatric component is this. Uh, we looked at uh, 
we looked at uh, what anthropologists call home range size for ethnographic societies in the, in the anthropological record. And there's a data set of 339 uh, anthropological societies that pulled together, compiled, and with all kinds of variables measured in these by an uh, uh, anthropologist by the name of Lou Benford long ago. So we, he had home range size on all these things. So we predicted that the more parasites in a uh, region where the uh, indigenous society lives, the smaller the home range as kind of a as kind of a surrogate measure of dispersal. If it's a small home range, then the people aren't dispersing as much as if it's a big home range. And so we did that analysis and showed that it works. That is, more parasites, the smaller the home range of the people uh, across these 339 indigenous societies. We did that. Then uh, we did another thing where we looked from the U.S. Census Bureau. They send out a uh, every 10 years they do a census over here in the United States. And they send you're supposed to fill these. It's a pretty good sampling procedure. They kind of threaten you. They say you got to fill it out and send it back. So it's a pretty decent sampling method. But there's one question on it that we focused on in the last census, which was, uh, have you moved? from your state to another state since the last census. So that question of whether you've moved to another state uh, since the last census. And we predicted, of course, more movement, the more liberal the states were, or less movement, the more conservative the states were, the U.S. states. And that worked very well, too. Uh, so people are moving more in terms of at least between states. Um, so we did show in that analysis that um, you know, for the 50 states of the U.S., that uh, the more conservative the state, the more people stay home. They don't move to, to other states. Uh, and the more, said differently, the more liberal the states, the more people. That's, that's one way we've done it. Um, and um, let's see, so we did that. Um, we did those things. And so, and there's some other hints in the uh, traditional psychological literature uh, that would support, uh, oh, I know, a really cool one. Uh, there was a guy named Carney who did a study. He went in, he was interested in, uh, in uh, this, not from the standpoint of the theory. He just had a sense that conservatives don't move much, move around much, and liberals do more. Uh, and I mean, Mussolini, go back to Mussolini, too. Uh, he said, he said, the problem with liberals, <laughs> he hated the liberals, he was very conservative. His problem is his fascist, uh, it's as conservative as they get. Uh, the problem with liberals is that they move around a lot and they bring in diseases when they move. <laughs> they move around and catch diseases out there and bring them back. So, uh, uh, anyway, uh, so Carney, he did this study where he went into the homes, had a big sample of people, conservatives and liberals, went into their homes and asked them about their traveling, okay, uh, mm -hmm. traveling around the U.S., it was U.S. sample, or around the world, wherever, and uh, examined their homes for travel paraphernalia. So all kinds of things, you know, travel, uh, souvenirs, and all that kind of stuff. He showed the more conservative the person, the less traveling they had done. 
and um, and so that was kind of a cool study too. So there's evidence uh, for the filipatry certainly from various levels, but the individual level and the ethnographic societies and so forth and so on. So um, the on the on the collectivism uh, and parasite stress, I didn't mention. I, I focused on across countries and across states in the U.S., but uh, an anthropologist, uh, Elizabeth Cashton did a very interesting study. She went in the ethnographic record of anthropology and uh, uh, coded uh, degree of collectivism across uh, societies there in the ethnographic record. I think she had 186 societies that she could code uh, degree of collectivism on. And uh, then their parasite stress scores are available for all those ethnographic society locations from work that Bobby Lowe did and Elizabeth Cashton too. And so uh, parasite stress predicted uh, uh, predicted uh, collectivism and for the ethnographic society as well. It's not just U.S. states and across countries. It works for ethnographic societies too. So that's powerful comparative stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would also like to ask you, uh, was it the case that in all of these studies that you've been talking about, uh, people also controlled for uh, IQ. And I'm asking you this because one of the factors that go into uh, the level of IQ that people are able to reach also has to do with, uh, for example, if they are exposed to infectious disease that affects their neurodevelopment, then they might get a, a lesser score on their IQ scale, let's say. Uh, and and uh, I also want to ask you about this because it seems to me at least that IQ is highly co correlated with uh, things like openness to experience, at least in the aspect of being open to new ideas. Right. Uh, and, and so, yes, and the other factor would be that one, the, the fact that people uh, are, uh, are more open to novelty uh, and new ideas and things like that. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good uh, part of this story. Actually, uh, we did uh, we did a lot a lot of research on IQ variation. IQ uh, has been a big topic in psychology for a long time, and uh, and uh, so trying to figure out how to measure it, measuring it across states, across countries, and so forth. Big big deal in psychology. But why does it vary so much is, is a question we were interested in. Why does it vary so much among individuals, among groups, among states, among countries, and so forth? Uh, so there were all these, all these data uh, across states of the U.S. and across countries of the world on IQ variation. And we thought that what's going on potentially is that it does relate to infectious disease in that uh, – in that – to you know, to build a to build a quality nervous system, big brain and so forth, which would promote IQ, uh, takes a lot of energy, and also your immune system is huge. Okay, it's huge, uh, and it's going to be very costly as well to to maintain. And we figured those two things would trade off. So under high infectious disease, 
you've got to make your a good immune system, uh, both classical and behavioral immune system. You got to make that, or you die under high infectious disease, and that's going to trade off with the energy and tissues that you have available to make a quality uh, uh, nervous system. So we anticipated that infectious disease levels across countries and across states would correlate with IQ. More infectious disease, lower IQ across countries and states. And we tested that. And remarkably, the, uh, the correlations were extremely high uh, between infectious disease and uh, IQ, or but you know conservatism and IQ. So the more, the more infectious diseases, the lower the IQ. The more conservative, the lower the IQ. And that, we think, is due to the trade-off uh, with, uh, with, uh, between uh, making a good immune system and uh, uh, neuro, you know, a good brain, basically. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like, um, I mean, some have said, okay, and I think it's depending on the view. So if you look at, if you take a liberal, take a liberal person, they just think that this conservative stuff, like what the Ku Klux Klan does and all that extreme conservatism, fascism, and all that stuff, is just crazy. And these people aren't very smart. Okay, that's that's they just don't have sense enough to know better. That's that's a common interpretation I've run into when I talk to liberals about this work. They just don't. And but it's it's not just that. Okay, because xenophobia, the hate, dislike, avoidance of outgroup people is very strategic for these people. So it's not simply that uh, they have low IQ and therefore they hate people different from them and that's all there is to it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's move on to talk about a more specific topic that is the one that I referred to at the very beginning of this interview, that is the differences between people that live in the southern United States and the northern Americans, let's say. So we've already talked about uh, things like conservatism and liberalism and how people, uh, and in terms of also philopatry and ethnocentrism and things like that. But uh, I would like to ask you if uh, parasite stress theory of values also does a better job than perhaps explanations that have been put forth by people like Dr. Richard Nisbet and others when trying to explain differences in terms of people resorting more or less to violence to solve uh, social conflict and also perhaps levels of religiosity uh, and also uh, support for gun ownership and being against gun control and other factors like that that really differ between northern and southern states of the United States. Right. Yeah, that's a topic we've uh, we we spent a lot of time on. Actually, the uh, culture of honor, as Nisbet <clears throat> called it. It, in, and in short, the culture of honor is just collectivism. It's conservatism, culture of honor. And uh, this, the, you know, the, uh, the valuing and reverence, really a reverence almost, of in-group people to the point where, and you're tied to them. 
So conservatives uh, have a different conception, let's start here, have a different conception of self than do liberals. That's been known a long time in psychology. So the conservative self is uh, not an independent individual. It's an interdependent individual. So the conservative self sees self uh, strongly related to the other in-group members, so the extended family and so forth. It's not separable from that. The, in, the, the, the liberal self is an individual, individualism, uh, the uh, a separate entity okay, that, that thinks on his or her own, uh, acts on his or her own, doesn't need permission from the in-group and so forth. Whereas the conservative is tied in decision-making and thinking uh, to the in-group. It's an intellectual interdependence that the conservative has, whereas the liberal is intellectually independent. So if you, if you insult a conservative, you're simultaneously insulting that person's mother, father, grandfather, in-group, the whole thing. Because that person is part of all that and reveres all those people because of the strong social size associated with ethnocentrism. As a result, if you insult that person that way, that person's going to get mad. And that can escalate all the way to lethal violence. That's why you get, that's why you get such high homicide rates in conservative places. It's not just the southern United States. If you look at homicide rates across countries of the world, they're correlated very strongly with parasites and conservatism, positively correlated. So the culture of honor, basically, this whole honor concept where you honor your family, you honor your in-group, and if, you're, if somebody disrespects you, uh, you take action against them, uh, and you can escalate in that action and kill them and so forth and so on. All that is uh, coming out of conservatism. And uh, so we look at, we looked, uh, so Nisbet, I mean, they, they very... Uh, they very uh, nicely show, Nisbet and colleagues have shown that uh, the, the southern United States is, has very high culture of honor. They show that very well. Uh, but it's not specific to the United States. It's U.S. South. It's, it's wherever there's, wherever there's uh, conservatism, we show. And, um, and, uh, and so we, what we looked at, one thing we, we did, uh, they Nisbet and uh, colleagues have emphasized how the culture of honor uh, is associated with high homicide rates, especially male-male homicide. And um, so we looked at homicide data across states. We did that analysis first, and we went across nationally too. But across states of the U.S., the parasite stress, turns out, is the best predictor of rates of homicide across the states in the United States, best known predictor. Prior to our work, the best predictor was the Gini coefficient in the state, so the degree of wealth disparity, which makes a lot of sense. So if wealth's disparate, then you got a lot of these disenfranchised males who are in fast track, and they're taking a lot of risk and so forth, and they engage in more violence, and you get escalated violence all the way to murder. So Gini is a factor, but we partial out Gini and show that uh, parasite stress is the best predictor of homicide rates across states of the United States. So it's a serious, uh, it's a serious uh, 
matter in homicide research now. You know, infectious disease and conservatism, how that impacts uh, homicide rates. And it's basically that if you diss, if you disrespect a conservative man, you are disrespecting his granddaddy, his great-granddaddy, his uncles, his sisters, his mama, everybody, and all his friends, and everything. that's that, and that's why he gets so damn mad. <laughs> I grew up in the in the old South, uh, in uh, the heart of Dixie, Alabama, and mm -hmm. uh, culture of honor was everywhere. It was fa they fa those people fascinated me, and uh, that's one thing I think that that uh, led me to. Uh, this research on values, trying to figure out how those people got in that shape down there. And I'd often tell them, what is wrong with you people? And uh, finally, I just started observing them, studying them. <laughs> yeah. So that's what the culture of honor is all about. And, I mean, th there's also this family honor component, too, where, uh, where uh, it pertains to the female honor aspect. Female honor in conservative cultures is uh, to protect the jewels and do what daddy says. And so daddy owns you in a conservative uh, place. Daddy owns the girls. And then that ownership is passed to the husband when at marriage uh, from daddy. But the girl is supposed to obey daddy's rules and, and so forth and, and uh, not engage in any sexual behavior. If she violates that, then she dishonors daddy and the, and the family. And you get these extreme cases where, uh, you know, the girl is killed and so forth in very conservative places uh, because of her dishonoring of the family. That level of, of honor, uh, that type of honor, too, is very much uh, associated with conservatism. And uh, so we, we looked at all the homicide stuff across nationally and across states in the U.S. and everything. Everything works beautifully in light of uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've also asked you about levels of religiosity, but perhaps it's even more interesting to get more specific here and talk about specific contents in terms of directing uh, people's morality and people's behavior when dealing with people from in-group and out-group and things like that, that uh, get uh, or that creep in into many religions. So, for example, uh, I, I think that it is very interesting that there are a lot of religious rituals that use water and water is associated with something that, that, that cleans, that rids people of infections and contamination and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps there are a lot of rituals that are associated also with purity and with uh, separating categories of peoples and things like that. Uh, and also, also so since we're talking about exposure to infection, uh, there, there's a lot that goes into religion that has to do with uh, sexual behavior and, and avoiding being promiscuous and other stuff like that. So that also comes uh, from uh, parasite stress, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, let, we have looked, uh, looked in detail at... Uh, a couple of different aspects of uh, the religion issue. One is uh, uh, religion scholars measure uh, degree of religiosity. 
And so religious commitment and participation of people, it varies tremendously. Of course, it varies, varies uh, across individuals, but it also varies across regions of the world, states of the United States, and so forth. And religion scholars have been very interested in measuring this religiosity, religious commitment, and, and participation. There are data in the literature on uh, all the countries of the world, the states of the United States, and so forth, they're religion scholars. And we figured that uh, religiosity as a component of conservatism would be predictable from the parasite stress theory. So degree of, uh, degree, you know, parasite stress, uh, as that increases, you should get more religiosity. And we tested that against the data in the literature provided by uh, religion scholars that they've accumulated there and showed that that is true. That is, more, the more uh, infectious disease, the more religious people are, both across countries of the world, across states of the U.S. And uh, religion, what it does is uh, it serves the ethnocentric part. So you get the in-group in -group focus associated with religion. And the more religious, the more in-group focus and less out-group interaction there is. And it also gives a boundary. I mean, religions are defined by religion scholars as a group over here believes in a particular God, and this group over here believes in a different kind of God. And that's a significant difference to the people. They differ in this belief. So it's, it creates a boundary, religion does, and that's a xenophobic, that serves the xenophobic aspect of disease, uh, disease worry and, and avoidance and so forth. So, yeah, we showed, uh, I mean, this provided a new theory of religion. It's, it's parasite-based, basically, and, and value-based. And that's one thing we did with religion. And the other thing was uh, religion scholars have been interested in why uh, regions of the world vary so much in number of religions. So if you look at uh, some countries of the world, you'd have, you know, hundreds of religions in the country. Other country, 10 religions, like Norway and Sweden and so forth. They don't have many religions up there. <laughs> but, but if you go down to the equator, uh, you've got lots and lots of religions in those countries. And most of these religions, most people have never heard of. You'd have to be a religious scholar to even hear of them. They're, they're minor religions, but very important to the people that have them, of course, even though they're minor in terms of number of participants. Uh, but religious scholars have uh, tabulated the number of religions uh, per country. And we took those data and showed that uh, the more parasites in a region or the more conservatism in a region, uh, the more uh, religions you find. And that's an aspect of the theory. That uh, pattern is an aspect of the theory, parasite stress theory, we haven't talked about, which is that it, uh, it's a theory that generates uh, new cultures. So basically, if you have a, a culture in a geographic region, because of the xenophobia, ethnocentrism, and philopatric, you get a localization uh, and a fractionation within that, within the big culture. You get a fractionation, and you get boundaries and so forth, and you get new cultures arising. So the parasite stress theory uh, is a theory of the genesis of new cultures, and we measured, we, we looked at that aspect of the theory by looking at the number of religions 
uh, across countries of the world and the number of languages across countries of the world. Linguists have been interested in that too. Why some countries have so many languages and other countries don't have any language. And uh, we showed that uh, parasite stress uh, and conservatism predicts the number of religions and the number of uh, uh, languages across countries of the world. Yeah. So that's going on uh, out there too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about how parasite stress theory of values also might help us explain certain historical phenomena uh, and things like that. So I would like to ask you if you think or if there's evidence that perhaps uh, the fact that the Inquisition was created after those several waves of bubonic plague that went through Europe and that really wiped out a lot of people in certain places. It was a third of the population. In others, I think it was two-thirds even, so really a lot of, a lot of people. That, that perhaps, uh, the, because the, the Inquisition seems to have been developed, right after that period, that, uh, that perhaps because people were exposed a lot to infectious disease, that it could explain uh, the timeline there, and perhaps yeah. why certain religious, practice, religious practices followed up from those uh, events in Europe. Yeah, oh yeah, very much so. Are these... Uh these uh, events, uh, you know, major events in history, the Inquisition, the Enlightenment, the Cultural Revolution in the West in the 60s, all those kinds of things, uh, liberalization of values in the 60s in the West, all that stuff's been very interesting to us. And, uh, and uh, we can start picking away at that. Um, the easiest one, to talk about in detail, because it's more recent, and we know more about it, is the uh, Cultural Revolution in the West in the 1960s. And then we'll go to the Enlightenment and uh, Inquisition, go back, back in time. <laughs> but the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and, and 70s uh, uh, in the West is, uh, has attracted a lot of attention from historians, because God, all of a sudden, people got liberal. <laughs> in general, people people got liberal. They got you know against the war, against government, uh, free love, all that kind of stuff. Sexual sexual attitudes were liberalized, and general attitudes were liberalized. You had the feminist movement occurring in the sixties and seventies, female power, um, racial uh, uh, minorities uh, were uh, began to be viewed more positively. All the all the uh, disenfranchised groups, homosexuals began to come out of the closet and so forth. I mean, tremendous social revolution occurred in the 60s, specifically in the West. So what in the heck went on? Well, the uh, historians say that um, it, well, people's values were liberalized. Right, but we ask why were people's values liberalized back then and all of a sudden. And uh, the, the story we tell about that is uh, from infectious disease, of course, and, and change of values accordingly. So if you start with 
start with so this so you really got the liberalization in young in the people in young people like university age college age uh, high school age those kinds of people young people young adults uh, in the 60s rather than the parents of those people and um, so it was, it was something that went on prior to these people's upbringing right a generation or two before so if you start looking at that, there's a lot known about, um, about health issues, uh, health interventions in the West. And uh, you start off with chlorinated water, 1920. Okay. So a little, add a little bit of chlorine to the water, and you kill basically all the infectious disease. And that spread very rapidly throughout the West. And this was not happening outside the West. So that's 1920s. Got that. Also in the 20s, uh, there were uh, there were laws uh, that came along for garbage disposal for the first time, sewage disposal, uh, a lot more indoor toilets hooked into the sewer system, the toilets. Uh, food handling laws came along first in the 1920s, and so that was a tremendous health improvement, sanitation. And then uh, you go, go to the jump up to the 1940s, and you have child vaccination programs that started widespread in the West. Uh, you also have antibiotics coming out right at right at the end of World War II, 1945. Good antibiotics. There were some antibiotics before that, but they weren't very good, and uh, the side effects were about as bad as the diseases. Uh, like with the sulfur drugs and so forth. But real good antibiotics, uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics, came out in 1945. Also, you had uh, fluoridated water coming in 1945, too. Fluoridated water is very protect protective against a whole laundry list of mouth diseases. It not only reduces uh, tooth cavities, but the little, put a little fluoride in the water, and you, you protect people from lots of mouth diseases. So that was 1945. Then also uh, in 1945, you had good uh, insecticides coming along. All this is Western improvement coming out of science. Uh, insecticides, DDT and other hydrocarbons, uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons and various other kinds of uh, pesticides that worked against vectors, especially mosquitoes. About 1930, about 1930s, it, uh, People began to put screens on their windows over here in the West, keep out mosquitoes. So that reduced malaria too. And malaria was basically controlled by mid 40s, mid 40s, 50s, or in the West. And um, so all these health interventions were going on in beginning in the 20s through the 40s. And then lo and behold, you got these young adults that were raised in a relatively disease free environment compared to what. Uh, had been the case before, uh, who were liberals. So we use that as a very, very strong case for, uh, for uh, infectious disease being really important in uh, the social revolution. And, you know, the sexual revolution was part of that, too, and uh, the sexual revolution. So a liberalization of uh, sexual attitudes and all. We've done some stuff on, on uh, sexual... Uh, attitudes across countries, and that correlates, of course, with liberalism. The more liberalism, the more openness to sexual behavior. So that's a good case where you can tie 
you know, this all this evidence on health interventions to a major cultural change. Something like that must have been going on with the Enlightenment and the other direction in terms of infectious disease, as you mentioned, for the Inquisition. So, yeah, lots and lots of bubonic plague and associated misery with that. But if you got a lot of bubonic plague, you got a lot of other diseases, too. It wasn't just bubonic plague. It was, it was high levels of lots of infectious diseases. Bubonic plague is the most famous because it kills so many people. But, uh, and, you know, and so dramatically uh, killed these people. Uh, but uh, there were other infectious diseases, too, to get that high degree of conservatism that characterizes the, characterizes the Catholic Church uh, in the Inquisition, where, I mean, that's just extreme neophobia. I mean, you know, her, that, was, that was against heretics, okay? Anybody that speaks negatively about the Church will kill you, basically. Um, and uh, that's just neophobia. That's an expression of neophobia, which is, which is extreme conservatism, yeah. And with the Enlightenment, uh, with the Enlightenment, uh, what you've got, I mean, first of all, it's important to realize that these, these liberal things, uh, the Enlightenment, uh, the Glorious Revolution, those kinds of things going on at the same time, scientific revolution, uh, all that occurred at high latitudes. Didn't occur at the equator. Okay, you're not going to get a scientific revolution at the equator still. Or, or an enlightenment at the equator. That's that's high latitude, and and that that that's uh, all else equal. You know, you got fewer parasites, the higher the latitude. So parasites like it wet and warm, and so they do better at uh, low latitudes than high. So all these all these things, uh, but the details of the enlightenment and so forth have not been have not been looked at. I, ma I imagine. I mean, if you look at just you know, if you put in, if you put, if you if you Google, uh, in the Enlightenment and sanitation, mm -hmm. what you see is the beginning of uh, concern that people had about getting getting uh, getting human waste piped out of the city. Okay, they put in some pipes and stuff. So you're beginning to get uh, an effort in sanitation. That uh, I think you know, if, if some historians would would uh, take a look at that, they would find that uh, the Enlightenment can be explained just like the Cultural Revolution of the '60s in the West. It's a simple uh, disease disease situation, yeah. Emancipation from disease, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I think that the, this is a very important discussion because I mean, people think uh, tend to think that it is values that cause people's behavior, but, but perhaps they don't tend to uh, question uh, where those values come from. And perhaps the, uh, the, there's another line of causation, something, something that comes prior to the, change, to the changing of values, and that in this case uh, it is parasite stress, and in other cases it might be other uh, environmental aspects, but I mean, p perhaps people tend to focus too much on uh, purely 
mental things and very little on environmental circumstances, at least a lot of the time. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you go through all of our evidence, you, you must, if you're objective, you're going to be, you're going to see uh, that parasites are playing a much greater role than uh, we knew before in explaining values. And we certainly haven't uh, proposed that parasites are the only thing. There could be other things affecting values, but uh, we think parasites have been overlooked and uh, need to be very much uh, in the minds of uh, people who are interested in values, what the causes of values are. And, you know, not only people who are interested in the causes of values from a scholarly point of view, but people who are interested in values from a humanitarian point of view too, uh, that, uh, you know, our evidence says that if you want to make people more egalitarian, make them more liberal, make them less prejudiced, then uh, you need to focus on emancipating people from parasites. And then you will begin to get people that grow up and uh, are more uh, liberal-minded and open to uh, and less prejudice and so forth. Yeah. Okay, so let's just tackle one last question before yep. we finish the conversation here, uh, that I think it's also a very interesting one, and it is not uh, particularly focused on humans, but in all animal species in general that has to do with this. So, uh, again, about parasite stress. Uh, would you say that this is another factor that is the levels of exposure to infectious sources and pathogens and parasites, that this is another factor that we have to take into account in explaining, for example, uh, how uh, two different groups of the same species uh, get separated and then perhaps develop philopatry and then eventually over time they end up speciating. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. That's, uh, that's part of our research actually, to look at the role of uh, infectious disease in creating new species. I mentioned that uh, in, we think infectious disease is creating new culture. So you got this culture in one region, and you get, in, if, if that region is a high infectious disease region, then the infectious diseases, through their effects on values, will fractionate the original culture to the point where you get new cultures arising. It, we think it works the same way, basically with uh, creating new species and explaining the uh, great variation in species numbers across the world. So ecologists have known, biologists have known a long time that there are a hell of a lot more species in the tropics than in temperate zones. And they've thought about why that is and all that kind of stuff, all kinds of crazy ideas. But basically, uh, if you put the disease model into the, into the picture, then I think that's very, uh, very nicely explains that. Because what happens if you got a species over a, a geographic range, and that geographic range is in an area of high infectious disease, you get, uh, you get values in those species that are analogs of the human values we've talked about, that are analogs. And it, there's a lot of uh, behavioral ecologists are looking at personality and 
in uh, fish and birds and all that, insects and so forth, and finding some interesting stuff that, uh, that looks like these personality traits are analogs, really, of uh, the kinds of uh, behaviors you see with, associated with human values. So philopatry uh, and uh, openness and uh, aggressiveness and uh, uh, shyness and those kinds of things, introversion. Uh, you got that in fish and insects and, and mammals and so forth, you know. So, uh, so basically under high infectious disease, you get this original species range fractionating and, uh, uh, and you know, uh, then you get genetic dis discontinuities between these groups all the way to reproductive isolation. Then you have new species which explains, we feel, the uh, strong uh, latitudinal correlation in species number. There's another, there's another pattern in ecology that's been known a long time, too, which is that, uh, that, that species ranges are smaller in the tropics than in temperate zones. So that's, a, that's, like, that's comparable to our study I mentioned earlier in uh, indigenous societies where you get a small home range under high infectious disease thing. And, and that's a philopatry kind of thing. So you get smaller ranges in these tropical species just because uh, they don't move as much, not as much dispersion. So that's, and we call this uh, the speciation part of this story that we're talking about, we call that the parasite-driven wedge model of speciation, a new model of speciation. Yeah, driven okay. by parasites. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, very well. So, Dr. Farnil, it was, again, really a pleasure to have you on the show. I think we, we've really got the opportunity here to break down all of the aspects that yeah. are associated with parasite stress theory of values. Uh, and so, uh, and perhaps, I mean, perhaps in the future we could do uh, another interview, but, but then perhaps more focused uh, on another aspect of your work that has to do with sex differences in humans. But since I've already had on the show people like Dr. Uh, David Buss, Richard Lip, and others with whom I talked specifically about that, but perhaps with you we could talk about it more from, let's say, a phylogenetic standpoint and a comparative biological slash psychological logical standpoint. Okay. okay. Well, let's keep that in mind then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, Dr. Thornhill, again, th thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was thank really you. a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Bye-bye. Hi everybody, thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end and also by the way for coming to my channel. Uh, as you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep this channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even if just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perhelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford and Hans Frederick Sunda. Thank you for all.